Women are remarkable. You know what I'm doing. Jane Austen defined an entire literary genre. A 12-year-old girl, Anne Frank, gave us the most powerful and poignant account of World War II. Sojourner Truth, Rosa Parks, Marmee Till, fearlessly stood against injustice. Church history has given us the stories of Susanna Wesley, Corey Ten Boom, and Amy Carmichael. I'm sure you've heard these names before. Carmichael, in the face of chronic illness, worked to rescue young girls from being sold into prostitution in India. It was her ministry that would inspire other missionaries like Jim and Elizabeth Elliot to do the work of the Lord. We find remarkable women in secular and sacred history, and we find remarkable women in the Bible. Eve trusted in the Lord, declaring, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Sarah hoped against hope for God's promise. Rahab gave us an amazing expression of faith. Ruth's loyalty led her away from her own people, carried her into a new land where she would become the royal, a mother of the royal line. Hannah gave us a powerful portrait of feminine faith, and then there are the stories of Anna, the Samaritan woman, Mary Magdalene, and Lydia. The Bible confirms it. Women are remarkable. The Bible never degrades or belittles women. From the first chapter of the Bible, we're taught that women bear the image of God. Proverbs 19.14 says, House and wealth are inherited from the Lord, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. Excuse me, house and wealth are inherited from fathers. A prudent wife is from the Lord. God commands children to honor not just fathers, but both father and mother. The Bible never downplays a woman's intellect. The Bible never dismisses the talents, abilities, and spiritual gifts of women. The Bible does, however, teach that men and women are different. We might say it honors them in different ways. When the Bible talks about the marks of an excellent woman, the stress is almost entirely on feminine virtue. What rises to the surface is not her career or her accomplishments, What comes to the surface is her character. The Apostle Peter writes, speaking of women, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of your hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. It's 1 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4. Of course, this verse isn't a prohibition against doing your hair, wearing jewelry, or putting a fancy dress on. It's a prohibition against letting these things define you. The essence of feminine beauty is not found in any embellishment, but, as Peter says, in the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. This morning, we're going to see an example of such feminine beauty in Mary, the mother of Jesus. This morning, we're going to study the angel Gabriel's announcement to Mary of Jesus' birth. I believe the actions of Mary that are found in this passage are commendable. 
and they provide a helpful picture of feminine beauty. And of course, along the way, we're going to learn some things about this unique child that she will bear. This picture has two parts this morning. First, we'll see Mary's surprise. That'll be in verses 26 through 33. And then we'll see Mary's surrender in verses 34 through 38. Quite simply, we'll see that Mary's life gives us a portrait of feminine beauty. And with that, if you would, please stand as we read Scripture this morning. Again, Luke chapter 1, verses 24, excuse me, 26 through 38. Thus says the word of the Lord. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her whom was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Again, this morning and through Mary's life, we're given a portrait of feminine beauty. In this passage, we have a meeting between the angel Gabriel and a virgin named Mary. You might recall, Gabriel was the angel that appeared to Zechariah earlier in Luke chapter 1, verse 19. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. He says this to Zechariah earlier in the book. Apparently, this angel, Gabriel, stands in the very presence of God, and he was sent to speak with Zechariah and Mary. You might also recall it was Gabriel who came to the prophet Daniel in the Old Testament. Given that the word angel or angelos in the Greek means messenger, we're not surprised. When Gabriel appears to Daniel and Zechariah, great fear fell upon them. In the case of Mary, well, Gabriel's, Gabriel's appearance is somewhat more serene. There's a tranquility about the way he comes to Mary. There's something about the way Luke describes this interaction that suggests a tone of simplicity. Of course, Gabriel isn't appearing before a priest, a prophet, or some prominent figure. Gabriel has come to visit a young virgin woman in a small village named Nazareth. 
And most likely, he has come to visit her privately in her home. This is what this phrase, he came to her, suggests in the Greek. The village of Nazareth, Nazareth was so insignificant that it's not even mentioned in the Old Testament. The Jewish commentary on the Old Testament we call the Talmud doesn't even mention the city or the village. The historian Josephus doesn't mention it in his history of Israel. Nazareth, Nazareth, Nazareth was not located in, on any major trade route. You might say... It was off the beaten path, and it was removed, well removed, from the worn paths of Jewish culture and religion. Recall the words of Nathaniel. We studied them recently in John chapter 1, verse 46. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I suppose we expect important people to visit important places, we would expect Paul McCartney or Andrea, Andrea Bocelli to visit cities like Los Angeles or New York. We're not surprised when they pass by Sedona, Monterey, or Bakersfield. Sorry. Of course, it's one thing for McCartney to stop the bus in Bakersfield. It's quite another for God's messenger Gabriel to stop in a place like Nazareth. Luke tells us two things about Mary. She was a virgin, and she was betrothed to a man named Joseph. The word virgin means what we think it means. There's a lot of debate about this, but at the end of the day, it really means what we think it means. It's a woman who has not had sexual relations. That's who Mary was. She was a virgin. And she was also betrothed to a man named Joseph. Now, what we call an engagement, they might call a betrothal, although it's somewhat different, of course, the difference being, in Mary's day, the initial stage of marriage involved a formal agreement to marry and a financial exchange of a bride price. You probably know this already. Uh, at this point, however, there's a legal agreement that takes place. Mary would, have be Mary would have belonged to Joseph in that betrothal process. The betrothal was so binding that, again, although not married fully, Mary would have been considered Joseph's wife. You recall in another passage in, in Matthew that when uh, Joseph finds out about this, he, he seeks to d divorce her. It uses the language of divorce because it was so legally binding, it was as if they would have been married. The betrothal period would have lasted about a year. During that time, the girl was to prove her faithfulness and purity, and the boy was to prepare their home. When the year was completed, the bridegroom would go and take symbolically the bride from her home, and he would take her from her home and take her to the new home that he had made for them. This would often involve a wedding day feast, a seven-day feast. And it was only after these events that the marriage would finally be consummated. It was common for Jewish girls to enter into this betrothal or engagement period at the age of 12 or 13. It's not wrong for us to assume that Mary would have been about that age, although Luke doesn't tell us exactly Luke does tell us something significant about Joseph. He was of the house of David, we find out. Joseph was a descendant of David. This is important as Scripture predicts that Messiah will come from the line of David. The angel Gabriel will make a similar point in verse 32 when he says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Although Joseph was not Jesus' natural father, 
His adoption of Jesus made him legally part of David's lineage. Even if Mary was to deliver the baby before the marriage ceremony, the engagement's legal ramifications would have ensured that Jesus was, in fact, from the house of David. We see, we see Mary's surprise begin in verse 28. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. The angel greets Mary and addresses her as favored one. The word in the original language is grace, grace-filled one. Mary is the special object of God's grace or favor. She is a recipient, not a bestower, a receiver, not a presenter. Like you and me, Mary was a sinner in need of God's grace. I've already mentioned Andrea Bocelli. If you're familiar with the great singer, you've probably heard him sing Ave Maria. It's one of his best songs. The song and the prayer is developed from, that, that is developed, the prayer that comes from that, comes from a mistranslation of this verse, Luke 1.28. The Latin Vulgate renders the ver, verse, Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. This verse leads to the notion that Mary possesses fullness of grace, which leads to the notion that people should pray that Mary would dispense grace to us. Furthermore, the Catholic Church takes these words from Gabriel, full of grace, again from the Latin translation, that Latin Vulgate, to mean that Mary was without sin. This is where the doctrine of what they call immaculate conception comes from. Remember, the immaculate conception is not about Jesus' birth. It's about Mary's birth. The Catholic Church believes that Mary was born without original sin. She was, from this verse, full of grace. It was Mary that had an immaculate conception, so they say. From this... Catholic doctrine teaches that Mary is, quote, dispensatrix, or the dispenser, of all the gifts that our Savior purchased for us by his death and by his blood. She is the supreme minister of the distribution of graces, the distributor of the treasures of his merits. That's what Pope Pius X said. Pope Leo XIII declared in his encyclical that, quote, Mary is the intermediary intermediary through whom is distributed unto us this immense treasure of mercies gathered by God. Pope Pius IX's encyclical affirmed the Catholic Church belief that Mary is, quote, the seat of all divine graces, adjoined with all gifts of the Holy Spirit, an almost infinite treasury, an inexhaustible abyss of these gifts. Finally, Catholic theologian Ludwig Ott writes, since Mary's assumption into heaven, now the assumption is that idea that Mary didn't die, but she was received into heaven like Enoch and Elijah were. Since Mary's assumption into heaven, no grace is conferred on man without her actual intercessory cooperation. These teachings, namely the doctrines of the Immaculate Conception that Mary was without original sin, her perpetual virginity, which I didn't talk about, but the idea that she was a virgin throughout her life, and the assumption that she was received into heaven without dying, they are unbiblical, 
and they lead to the worship of Mary, which is often called Mariology. Evangelicals call it that, and Roman Catholics call it that as well, Mariology. The Bible teaches us that there is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and it's Him and Him alone who is to be worshiped. He is our Redeemer. Specifically, it was His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, Messiah, that was sent by the Father to purchase our redemption by laying his life down as a substitutionary sacrifice. The Bible nowhere teaches that there's any co-redeemer of the human race. Romans 3, 24 says, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Additionally, the Bible teaches that all people are in need of God's saving grace. The Bible says this starkly. No one is good except God alone. Luke 18, 19. Those are the words of Jesus. Even Mary needed God's saving grace. She, like you and me, was a sinner in need of redemption. I do want to make the point that this Mariology is not a sideline issue for Roman Catholics. From their perspective, it's, you might say, a hill worth dying on, which is to say it's an official teaching of the church. This means, with humility and love in my heart, if you call yourself or someone you know calls themselves a Catholic, it would be right for us to assume that you believe those teachings. In the same way that me calling myself an evangelical means that I affirm the inerrancy and authority of God's word, the Trinity, and the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ and the virgin birth, you would expect me to believe those things if I call myself an evangelical. I would expect you to believe these things about Mary if you call yourself a Roman Catholic. I would say, conversely, if you don't believe these things, then you probably shouldn't call yourself a Catholic. It's possible you're here or you're listening and you believe yourself to be a Catholic. Well, first, you must know that to call yourself a Catholic is to affirm these teachings about Mary and her part in redemption. You must know that. She was conceived without sin, that she was conceived without sin, and that she is the dispenser of God's grace. If you don't believe these things, I suggest that you don't call yourself a Catholic. That being said, if you do believe yourself to be a Catholic, I want you to hear the best news in the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his unique son, his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And I know you're probably thinking, I've heard that before. But have you? Have you really heard that? The Bible teaches that there's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved than in the name of Jesus. When the Bible says, whoever believes in him, John 3.16, what I just quoted, it speaks of faith, but it also speaks about trust in the way that God saved that's a part of believing. 
It's not just putting faith in Jesus, but it's believing in the way that Jesus spoke about how one becomes saved. Both have to be a part of it. To believe in him is to believe that he is real, yes, but also to believe in the way that God saves, as explained in the Bible. And how is it that God saves? What is that way? Well, since we're talking about grace, let's use the acrostic grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace. Put that in your mind. God's riches at Christ's expense. The Bible teaches that God's riches, salvation, do not come at Mary's expense, nor through her mediatory work. The Bible teaches through and through that there is no other name but Jesus under heaven by which men must be saved. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he, God, made him to be sin who knew no sin, Jesus, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You might even say God's righteousness at Christ's expense. We have a booklet in the foyer. I think I have one with me. Hopefully I do. It's called Two Ways to Live. If you have any questions about how to come into a saving relationship with Jesus, I encourage you to pick one of these up in in our foyer out here. It's a tiny little book. It's free for you to have, and it outlines and explains how a person comes into a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're here, and maybe there's gaps in your thinking, maybe you've been here for years, and then some of the things I'm saying this morning are, what? I didn't think about it that way. I encourage you to pick this up and read through it. In, in a very simple way, it explains the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ and how a person can be saved. And there's tons of verses in here in, as well. Go to your Bible, open it up, read them. Search it out for yourself. I encourage you, pick one of these up. Moving on. Mary voices her surprise in verse 29. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be from Gabriel. Luke isn't specific here, but we can imagine being greatly troubled and somewhat confused by a visit from an angel. Gabriel immediately comforts her and gives her her some startling news in verse 30. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now there's a number of things to unpack here, but the central idea is that Mary is going to be the mother of the Messiah. The words of Gabriel are filled with so many messianic descriptions, any Jewish person would have understood this. Of course, the Messiah is that one promise from the Old Testament that would come and save, yes, the Jew, but also the nations. He would come and be that king that would come and save the Jew and the Gentile both. Of course, in the Old Testament, there was somewhat of a mystery about how he would do that. And as the Jews believed, they thought he would come you know, on a stallion to come and usher in this physical kingdom. And what he did in his first coming is, is he came as a suffering servant. And so he rides in on, into Jerusalem on a donkey, not 
a horse. So anyway, what does Gabriel say? Well, he says to Mary that she will conceive and she will call this boy's name Jesus, this baby's name Jesus. There's a pattern in the Bible in which angels announce miraculous comings. In Genesis 16:11, an angel comes and announces to Hagar that she will conceive and bear a son and he will be named Ishmael. In Judges 13:5, an angel appears to announce the coming of Samson. There's a pattern that happens here. Furthermore, the name Jesus is significant. We know that the name Jesus means Yahweh saves. Fitting name. Gabriel says that this child will be great. Seems like an understatement. We might have chosen synonyms such as preeminent, perfect, powerful, or magnificent, monumental, majestic. The Apostle John describes his greatness this way. We read it this morning. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth, John 1.14. And Paul said He was far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come, Ephesians 1.21. He says that he will be the son of the Most High. This affirms that this coming son would share the very nature of God. Jesus is the same essence of God, being his son. The author of Hebrews writes, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. What a powerful statement. He continues that he'll have the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob. I noted earlier how Jesus could be considered a legal heir of the Davidic throne or an illegal heir of David through Joseph. The angel teaches us why that's important with this phrase. It was the Messiah who would finally fulfill the promise outlined in the Davidic covenant, which is in, found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. We talk a lot about we hear a lot about the Mosaic Covenant. We hear maybe about the Noahic Covenant because we see the rainbow and it rains. Not here in Bakersfield, but, you know, other, other places. Uh, you know, we, we hear about, or the New Covenant certainly we talk about, but for some reason, we step over the Davidic Covenant. At least I feel that way. I feel like we don't, we don't read about it or talk about it much, and it's an important part of the coming of Jesus because Jesus is that son that is promised in the Davidic Covenant. As a reminder, it's in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and the prophet Nathan says this to David. He says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your, off, your, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be, be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Of course, we know that David's actual son, Solomon, seems to kind of fulfill some of, this, some of these ideas. But certainly Solomon's kingdom didn't reign forever. So we have in this promise kind of this, this immediate fulfillment in Solomon, even this phrase, when he commits iniquity, 
We know Jesus didn't commit any sins. Uh, but So we have a, an initial kind of fulfillment in Solomon, but this is further reaching out, and Jesus, Messiah, is that one that's ultimately going to come and fulfill the Davidic covenant. Interestingly, this phrase, you know, that he will commit sin, or when he commits iniquity, I will dis- discipline him with the rod of men. Some commentators have seen Jesus even in that, because although he didn't commit any sin, we know that he took on our curse. And so there's a sense in which this even applies to Messiah, Jesus. And so those are the words of the Davidic covenant. Gabriel also speaks about the duration of Jesus' rule. He says, of his kingdom there will be no end. His rule will be forever. We're not given the details, but from the passage of Scripture, from other passages, as we kind of look at all of what Scripture says, we might say that Jesus was anointed king at his first advent or his first coming, and he will be crowned as king at his second advent. As we consider this passage in our day, of course, we look back at the cross, we look back at the resurrection, we look back at the ascension. We see now Jesus to be enthroned in heaven. Yet I would say... Jesus is not on the Davidic throne, not yet. He is in heaven, but he's not on David's throne. We look forward to that day in which Jesus will return to establish that throne, that kingdom, and that will be finally fulfilled in what we call the millennial kingdom of the future. When you consider all these things, the greeting Mary received and the news that she would become the mother of the promised Messiah... Well, I think it's right to, to, to see her, to, be, to expect that she would be surprised. And surprised she was. Furthermore, I think Mary's response in verse 29 helps us begin to see something of her character. How regardless of the circumstances, Mary seemed to understand that God was in control. I'm not sure there's an event more intimately associated with God's will than the conception of a child. We often speak of the miracle of childbirth. We use those language, that language when we, when we talk about childbirth, the miracle of childbirth. In some ways, we're able to control the how and when of conception. We've developed technology that gives us the ability to prevent pregnancy, and we've found ways to give hope to infertile couples. But neither birth control nor fertility treatments are 100% effective. Some of you know this all too well. For all this technology, the miracle of new life is still in God's hands. Although we often put God at the center of conception, rightfully, the truth is he's at the center of everything. In the way we've learned to control Birth, in the way we've learned to control childbirth, we found ways to control other things as well our wealth, our longevity, our career, our society. Yet, for all of our ingenuity, for all of our plotting and planning, we still can't control everything. An optimist might say, When life gives you lemons, make lemonade. You're optimists. I don't know what the flip side of that is. I don't know what the pessimists say or the realist. I don't know what he says or she says. Ben Franklin said, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Maybe that's the pessimist. 
Whatever the case, whatever our perspective, we must learn to adjust to circumstances beyond our control. Do you think Mary's situation was beyond her control? I say it was. Yeah. Was it beyond God's control? I don't think so. Here's a lesson for us. Your situation may be beyond your control, but it's not beyond God's control. The lesson never gets old. It's a simple lesson, but it just never gets old. There's a very interesting verse in the Bible, Ecclesiastes 7.13. It says, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? I suppose we might say God brought a crooked event into Mary's life. It was an event that only he could straighten out. It's very possible you find yourself in the midst of a crooked event. If so, here are three things to consider. God is completely sovereign. God is infinite in wisdom. And God is perfect in love. God is completely sovereign, infinite in wisdom, and perfect in love. These three thoughts come from a book, and some of you probably read it. It's by Jerry Bridges, and it's titled Trusting God. It's a wonderful book. We don't have time to unpack these three ideas, but we might express them together like this. God in his love always wills what is best for us. In his wisdom, he always knows what is best, and in his sovereignty, he has the power to bring it about. It's my belief that these truths are so fundamental that you can almost, they, they can almost be found on every page of the Bible. In fact, here's a real practical application. Write down these three truths again. God is completely sovereign. God is infinite in wisdom. And God is perfect in love. Then read your Bible and put every verse. I challenge you to, to, to draw a line to one of those truths from every verse of the Bible and see if you can find a verse in the Bible that you can't draw, a story, a narrative, a poem, anything in the Bible that you can't at some point draw a line to one of those truths. I guarantee you can't find anything in the Bible that will be contrary to that. And every verse, they're so fundamental, those, those truths, that every verse can come back to those realities. They fit that rubric, you might say. You want something to celebrate this Christmas season, we'll celebrate this. Again, God is completely sovereign. He's infinite in wisdom, and he's perfect in love. All of this demonstrated in the events surrounding the birth of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we've seen Mary's surprise. I promised you two parts to the outline Let's return to our text, and we're going to see Mary's surrender in verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? Now, in verses 26 through 33, Mary learned what would happen, but she didn't know how it would happen. This question reminds us of Nicodemus' question in John chapter 3, verse 9. Maybe you remember this because we're studying the Gospel of John together. Jesus told Nicodemus that a person must be born again to see the kingdom of God. It was a radical statement to Nicodemus. To this, Nicodemus asked, how can these things be? Well, the way that Jesus tried to help Nicodemus understand, Gabriel tries to help Mary understand. Look at verse 35. And the angel answered her, 
the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Here's the answer to how. The Son will come as a miracle or through a miracle. We often speak of the virgin birth. That's okay. But it would be more accurate to actually use the word or the phrase virgin conception. It would be a little bit more accurate. The idea of this verse is that conception will involve the work of God's creative power. The same God that brought life out of the dust will bring life to Mary's womb. Hard to believe? Want some confirmation, Mary? Look at the next verse. Verse 36. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. Mary doesn't request a sign, but one is given anyway. Your relative Elizabeth, who was childless, has conceived, and even now she is in her sixth month of pregnancy. Pregnancy. We've already mentioned this pattern in Scripture of angels coming to announce the birth of a special child. There is another pattern, and that's the miracle of childbirth among the barren. In fact, it's quite interesting how the Bible often uh, uses a childless couple to advance the plan of redemption. It's a theme throughout Scripture. Sarah, Rachel, and Hannah are notable examples of this. God is demonstrating by opening the womb of a barren woman that nothing is impossible for him. And that's the point in the case of both Elizabeth and Mary. Look at verse 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. It's as if when you read Scripture, you see these, the redemption, plan of redemption through barren women, and then at the very end, the last one is even a step further It's a virgin woman. It's a powerful testimony that nothing is impossible with God. There's an older translation, verse 37, that says, For no word of God shall be void of power. If God can say to an old woman, You will bear a son. And if He can say to a virgin girl, You will conceive in your womb and bear a son. Nothing is impossible for him. And so we have Mary's response finally in verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Here we have, you might say we finally land on the major point this morning, Mary's surrender. Wearsby wrote, she experienced the grace of God and believed the word of God, and therefore she could be used by the Spirit to accomplish the will of God. Mary describes herself as a bondservant or slave of the Lord. Mary saw herself as the lowest kind of servant. She saw herself as the Lord's slave. Although the ESV translation that we're reading here this morning gives us the word servant, there is no idea of autonomy or rights in this word. For Mary to describe herself this way is, to, is for her to see herself in absolute submission to God. Mary belonged totally to her God. The wonder and weight of the angel's news didn't detour, detour Mary from what she believed about God. 
nor did it shift her from her position. Where such news might have sent us packing, Mary is not deterred. Mary stands with a quiet confidence and declares, let it be to me according to your word. What an example to follow. What a picture of feminine beauty. Notice, Mary doesn't say, let it be because I understand. She doesn't say, "Um, let it be because now I see what your future plans look like, Lord. Or let it be because I have a peace about it. She doesn't say any of those things. Mary is saying what Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 6.10, let your will be done. I imagine Mary's emotions were rattled by this news. I imagine she had specific questions about how to raise such a child, a teenager, remember. I imagine she was anxious and confused and conflicted, not to mention what others would think about this. We know if we read Scripture that there was a great pressure on this family, this new young family. I imagine she would have loved to be consulted about the matter. I imagine she would have loved some time to think over and ponder these things. But Mary doesn't ask for time to ponder. Mary opens her hands to the Lord and says, let this happen to me according to your word. God brought a crooked event into Mary's life, an event that only he could straighten out. Mary was able to surrender to the Lord because she was able to move her eyes from the horizontal to the vertical. When she gazed into the character of God, she saw a God who was completely sovereign, infinite in wisdom, and perfect in love. We sometimes say it this way, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. As we close, I'm sure you have some sweet memories of Christmas. I'm sure your family has certain traditions for during the Christmas season. It's a special time for for gathering and singing and sharing our affections. There's no holiday quite like it. With each Christmas, we have the opportunity to build new memories. We have the opportunity to make each Christmas a Christmas to remember. It's my hope that this Christmas you would do just that. Yet there's something more. Our study in God's Word this morning has given us another opportunity. We have an opportunity to make this Christmas a Christmas to surrender. I know there's a certain amount of trouble in your life. I'm fond of quoting Job 14.1, man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. McCarthy in his book, The Road, if trouble comes when you least expect it, then maybe the thing to do is to always expect it. When trouble walked into Mary's life, she was ready in the middle of the most momentous event in history stands a remarkable woman. When trouble has walked, what trouble has walked into your life? What great and momentous event is God waiting to accomplish through you? It's my hope that we might say to our Lord, as Mary did, let it be according to your word. And this Christmas might be for you a Christmas to surrender.